70 record closing highs so far for the day. Blasting through a ceiling. In a record setting IPO. Investors who have been riding the wave. When the stock market is booming, we're made to believe the economy is booming. As the stock market goes, so goes the wealth and the health and economy. So what exactly is the stock market measuring? 98.4 Capital FM, good evening, good evening, good evening, and good evening once again. Welcome to the Financial Focus, where you can access accurate, timely global market outlook on demand alongside our resident chief economist, Ken Gishinga from Mentoria Economics, myself, Danny Muni, and we have a very special guest today, Nyambura Ndongo, an accomplished finance director in one of the big companies in this country. And to listen to us online, www.radio.capitalfm.co.ke forward slash listen live or download the iCapitalFM radio app. Be the first to know what's happening every Monday morning, bright and early on the global markets by visiting www.mentoria.co.ke to subscribe. And you can reach us on today's program by texting us on 0701-984-984 or you can tweet us at Capital FM Kenya, hashtag Financial Forecast. A lovely Tuesday evening. I'm glad it's getting warmer. <laughs> finally. And finally. <laughs> and I really look forward to what should be an interesting take on global, regional, and the Kenyan economy. Um, last week, uh, we had the unfortunate loss of one of the big giants in Kenyan economics. That's uh, the late uh, permanent secretary, Harris Mule. Uh, many within the financial circles will remember him as really among the pioneer, really the first PS in planning, uh, major contributor, wrote the policy on district focus for rural development, which was really a precursor for the county uh, structure that we have today. So it's a big loss within the economic circles. And uh, indeed, we pay a tribute to a man who um, some of us tongue-in-cheek will say was part of the Troika. <laughs> troika. What's a troika? A troika is really the what you call, call the three most influential people who really back in the day controlled the Kenyan economy. And these were Philip Ndegwa, uh, Simeon Yachai, and now Harris Mule. And now with the departing of Harris Mule, it really marks the end of an era of really uh, the, the, the think tanks that have really driven Kenyan policy for the last odd, 60 years odd. Oh, okay. And is is it still is this the, is the trika still there or and are you part of maybe the, <laughs> the new constitution of the trika? Hardly. These are very informal. Time. You won't find it in the constitution. This is just an informal label we give um, to players. But definitely, what we mean is that the people, um, you know, when you go to the United States, you think of the Kissingers, you know, who really influenced foreign policy. People who have really been at the heart. Of the system, and uh, really, in many ways, Harris Mule was part of really the economics that drove this country, and along with many other people. But uh, it was indeed uh, sad to lose him. Amazing, amazing! That's a lovely tribute, Ken Nyambura and Dongo. Welcome to Financial Focus. Thank you, Danny. Thank you, Fa- Ken, for having me. <laughs> I become part of the big boys table today. Oh, for sure. And I am absolutely elated. You should be joining us every Tuesday. <laughs> I um I think your biggest fan. So to be part of the financial focus is an absolute pleasure. Just come round slowly to your microphone. Amazing. Right. Good. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. So take it from here, Nyambura. Okay. I think uh, following what happens on financial focus, let's get to know what's happening in the markets. The Dow Jones 
the SNB, the NASDAQ, the FTSC. I think they're all on the increase other than the Dow Jones can. Indeed, there has been a rebound in uh, global markets, as Nyambura said, mm-hmm. uh, really, uh, and that's being driven by quite a number of um, things. If you look at really the major indicators, the NASDAQ, uh, the Dow, the uh, the FTSEs, FTSE, which really has been done for many uh, for quite a long time, and really uh, the idea there is part of it is being driven by sentiments on what might happen in a pretty big event that's about to take place this week. That's called the Jackson Hole Symposium, when a meeting of the best bankers, central bankers, economists, academic professors will be meeting in this little town in Wyoming to really unpack where they see interest rates going. And a lot of people think possibly there could be some major announcements. Possibly there could be people who might say that maybe we are at the end of this interest rate uh, rising and maybe global markets have taken it quite well. But also there are some big tech stocks have come through very positively. Um, NVIDIA is up 8.5%, Microsoft up 87 and particularly the Nasdaq, which is very tech-heavy, has done particularly well. So it's a pretty positive week, people expecting much uh, from that symposium, and uh, we just have to wait and see on how that will play out. Not to anticipate what is going to happen uh, on Friday, it's happening on Friday, but how is it that we're just going to have a group of people coming to discuss and they should forecast whether we should have markets this way, that way. Isn't that what demand and supply of the economy is meant to uh, cover? No, that's an interesting uh, question, Yambura, and I think it points to the history of this event. Uh, this tend, tended to happen as an academic conference. Uh-huh. Uh, most academic professions tend to have an annual conference, and this was one for economists to come and really exchange ideas on the latest in their what they're publishing, what they're writing. I think it it got significance in the 80s under Paul Volcker when now they chose a location of Jackson, um, Wyoming, really. And I think his attending as the Fed chair gave it that much gravitas. And and by the way, he was a big fan of fishing, and that's one of the reasons the town was, was picked on that. So I think since then, it's gotten gravity, and all the uh, Fed chiefs afterwards have really all attended, whether it's uh, Alan Greenspan, uh, Ben Bernanke, um, Janet Yellen. Mm. So it moved from just being an academic conference towards really a place where the Fed chief, and when the Fed chief meets, people try to get insights on what they're thinking in their mind because what they're thinking affects global markets. If they're thinking interest rates might go up, um, the data is suggesting that, then you'll find the markets take it separate, uh, negatively. So I think it's another opportunity in the what you call the data matrix to get one more insight because these policymakers, their minds change all the time depending on the data they come. So it's not really a place where they come and connive on how global markets will go. I think it's where they come and debate on what are you seeing, what are you seeing, and what am I seeing, and being able to say, okay, I think maybe it's time now to maybe ease in on this tightening. I think this tightening is affecting businesses. So maybe let's go slow on this. And that has a huge impact on markets because it means people will have more money to buy stocks. So you find the stock markets really are rebounding well and, 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 and such. So I think really that's sort of the motivation uh, behind it. Somebody might ask, you know, in Kenya, do we have our own? Oh, <laughs> Jackson Hole. Is <laughs> yes going to be attending? <laughs> well, I think it's pretty much American-driven. Right. Um, 
on the international scale we do have the davos mm-hmm. where a lot of global leaders attend including our own uh governors and um finance ministers so possibly it's on the same par uh, sort of davos but this is a very american centric sort of uh, symposium so it just sorry it just revolves around the american economies yeah but yeah in it, a sense up and south in terms of participants but this has been one of the biggest arguments um should american monetary policy consider what's happening in the rest of the world because if they raise interest rates in the states it affects currencies here in kenya you see the shilling has been losing value because of those rate rises so a lot of people keep asking should the fed also be looking at data points from the rest of the world and say shook guys if you raise interest rates here yes you might tackle american inflation but what are we doing to other currencies around the world look at africa many african countries have lost almost 20 30% of their value so there's always that debate around the nature the mandate of the fed should it just be on american or given that the dollar is a reserve currency for the world or should they start looking at global events but right now they only look at data in the united states okay interesting because if at all it has been here for quite a number of years and uh, the markets are meant to be very independent but the markets are also very sentimental so these people are going to leave um, wyoming and then something is going to happen like i'm sure they had the same summit when the financial downturn in 2007 2008 happened but these are the same people who are running this central banks and all that so how independent is that summit from the economic market now that's a very powerful question um yambura and really um if you look at yields right now they actually the highest they've been since 2007 it actually feels like this is the time before the Lehman brothers collapse 16 year high, 16 year high. Mm-hmm. so the question is you know yes these summits have been there what was the discussion right. uh on uh the Jackson Hole summit of 2007 and you're absolutely right they have a big sway you know in fact Ben Bernanke i think is possibly the one central bank governor who kept saying every word matters, matters. every word that you say Direct. will affect Market. markets mm-hmm. so they just say what they think at the time i don't think they have any visibility into the future at that time i think there were concerns that the property market was unraveling but still remember the mandate of the fed they have two mandates number one um in price stability to make sure inflation is at 2% and also looking at unemployment which is at about 3.5% so in their world in the as long as they are meeting those objectives then they can't say that anything they have done has been at fault even if, to your point if a global crisis happens afterwards and i think it's a big topic right now people we got people asking are we tightening into a recession mm-hmm. are we raising interest rates to the point where we actually pushing the world into a recession and i think those are some of the um uh, discussions that will take place um at the jackson hole symposium okay. i think we can come closer home what is happening to sorry the maybe just before that there's a lot happening in china can you maybe just break it down for us there seems to be a crisis within the chinese economy that nobody has a hand on and will of course when we come into the continent see the kind of moves that the chinese president xi jinping is trying to make but before that what's happening with china You're absolutely right dani uh, china really is uh, one step away from a flu full blown crisis 
um, if you look at the property market last week, um, Evergrande, uh, the largest, uh, most indebted property developer in the world, really filed for bankruptcy. Um, if you look at uh, Country Garden, another huge developer um, has about 200 billion uh, in terms of payments, liabilities that it's about to default on. And if you look at the Chinese property market, it's really what here in Kenya would call the off-plan type, where you take money and even before you build. And if you look at uh, some of these companies like Avagrande, Country Garden, they have taken about a million payments from for a million households even before they started uh, building. This is the money they normally use to pay past developers. And that's why they keep saying the Chinese property edifice about a $60 trillion asset class. It's the largest asset class in the world. And if this comes unwound, you can imagine the chaos, what it means. So there is a feeling that China might go the QE way. Remember the way America went the quantitative easing way where they printed huge load of currency. China might need to print about almost $550 billion worth of currency to really boost demand because people are not buying uh, the uh, the buyers are drying out and 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 that they have accepted all this money for units have not built which they have to pay past debts and no new orders are coming so they need to put money in the pockets of Chinese citizens so those Chinese citizens can buy so much needs to happen and I think really anything short of that QE I think might be a significant uh, it's almost the way it was before the Lehman Brothers back in 2007. But what's Kenwood's pushing Evergrande and Country Gardens to this level? They had already gotten their finances and I, in my head it was just a matter of putting up the structures that people have in that sense bought off the plan and there seems then they were not able to because they were paying off past developers. Now, does that mean the developments that had been done before were not purchased? or Because then there has to be something that is making this a little bit cyclic. And COVID really was the answer to that. During COVID, um, they had the most aggressive response to COVID, the zero COVID policy. It meant a lot of companies had to shut down production. People lost jobs. Youth unemployment in China right now is almost 20-30%. So a lot of people lost jobs. Once you lose your job, your ability to get a mortgage, your ability to purchase a home becomes very limited. So these are all properties that had been built with the idea that a middle class is growing, it's advancing. COVID comes, people lose all these jobs. When you lose your job, your priority is to put food on the table. It's not even a house. So you have all these huge houses that have never been occupied. People are not purchasing orders have dried out and that's really what has cascaded um, into this huge uh, debt crisis. So that's really part of it, yeah. Gentlemen, I think there's a problem with the housing crisis because, and I know it's a very touchy subject because that is where Kenya is getting into right now. But if you look at what happened even during the global recession, it started with the housing crisis. So is there something that we need to look into? Because it clearly is... um, an indicator to something really tough happening in the economy. 
I think the housing crisis, if you look at the United States, you're absolutely right, Nyambura. It's really started with actually when interest rates were very low. One of the things that Alan Greenspan made very clear was under his tenure, uh, the interest rates on the bonds were almost next to zero. So it means investors needed to put that money elsewhere. And they found real estate as a very nice place to put that money because you have a growing middle class. Um, it's easy to be able to secure that debt. And over time, you could find the regulations for getting a house were getting looser and looser. At some point, they even had something called the Nina loans. No income, no asset. So all you had to say was, I work I for McDonald's. Mm-hmm. And you'd get <laughs> a house. <laughs> a, a house. Really so pretty money. much all you needed to have was actually a pulse. And that was around 2005, 2006. Mm-hmm. And people were getting homes where their payslip would not. Times. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So those are the things that really fuel it up. I think when I think about Kenya, um, obviously right now we're in the middle of the housing levy. This is a very huge debate on, you know, should the government be doing this or should the private sector? In these other countries, in the U.S. and China, this is a private sector. This is not some U.S. housing law tax that's doing this. actually private companies. And in Kenya, this is actually um, the government is uh, behind the property levy. But, you know, a lot of people keep saying, when I talk to real estate developers, they say COVID also sort of like deflated our property market. People have felt our property market is highly overvalued. And right. it might actually, it's, it's actually, value is actually starting to come down, especially on the sort of on the high end properties. So I don't think, I don't see a bursting of sorts, but I see a deflating, particularly on areas, you know, like Kilimani, where they find such a huge oversupply, much, much more than uh, the demand side. So it's not, a, Kenya is not as in that situation like China, mm-hmm. uh, but definitely for anybody look at the housing market, I think. It, it points to the effects that can happen on your supply side issue, but the demand is not meeting the supply. And so what would you say are the mitigating measures that China maybe could apply beyond qualitative easing that's already on the desk? Is there any other way they can salvage this situation either to first of all save Evergrande and Country Gardens and then kind of also now bring back that positive sentiment around the purchasing power within the citizens. It's a bit too late for China. I think those options would have been there during COVID. You remember when a lot of the European and American uh, countries uh, were really applying the follow schemes during COVID. Uh, That was actually a really brilliant idea because it kept households afloat. Even at a time when people are not making money, you are still working and getting some income. I think that was a brilliant idea that other countries should look at. Now, China didn't have those follows. So now they have uh, really had landing where people have lost jobs and the last thing on their minds is houses. It's rather put food on the table. So I think it shows that, you know, in as much as we treat China as uh, it's the second largest economy in the world, but it shows the policies are not at par in terms of sophistication because had they had a good follow um, scheme, right now people would still have had household savings. They would have been buying those homes and that's why I've not seen the US and the Europe go down that way. If the US had not had that follow program, right now you'd be having the same issue as China. People have lost jobs and really... So it points to maybe the lack of purity 
in terms of economic policy in um, China and how that, given that it's the second largest economy in the world, how that needs to really, really accelerate. Is there an expectation that there'll be a disruption within the export-import chain? It's already playing out in terms of currency, where the really the exchange rate, uh, the yuan is really losing um, a, a lot of value. Uh, what what really happens then is it's export. And you know China's main claim to fame is cheap products. And really that might not be able to play out. And some of the biggest markets in Europe, um, in Africa, across the US, so it, it has a, a, a huge a huge effect. So I think, Danny, back to your question, I think QE, it seems the only way. Well, so whether Xi Jinping will do the QE the American style, the Japanese next door have a excellent track record in in QE. Mm, it has yes. saved them. So I think China, um, as soon as they're done with this BRIC summit, I think that has to be sort of like uh, uh, the big issue that they will have to tackle. Talking of BRICS, something that is happening in South Africa, and we have guests, and uh, the South African market is actually looking absolutely fantastic. So why are we having it here? What What is the purpose of BRICS and uh, what are we looking to achieve? Considering um, we are having also the Jackson Hole happening in Wyoming and the BRICS came up to rival the D7 and uh, some of the agendas they are looking at is uh, the dollar debt, expansion of the alliance beyond G7 and the new development bank. Tell us about that, Ken. Yeah, I think uh, South Africa is having uh, its summer day. Really, the currency has gained about 0.7% uh, because of, really, the perceptions. You know, when you're part of this big club, <laughs> BRICS, it, 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 it makes South Africa forget some of its own internal problems of unemployment and no power. Load shedding. <laughs> load shedding. This week, nobody will be talking about. This week, people will be looking at South Africa as a peer to China, Russia, uh, Brazil, India, and China. And BRICS, actually, it used to be just BRIC. South Africa came in as sort of like a last-minute addition just to give it that nice geographical, uh, geographical expansion. expansion. Uh, but it's ironic, you know, that phrase actually came from an American uh, chief economist at Goldman Sachs, you know, who I think at that time was just looking at uh, the next markets in terms of population size. Right. So that's why if you look at Brazil, Russia, India, China, they're really high population countries. It's only South Africa. And that's what it tells you that South Africa just came in as a last-minute fit. But all the other four uh, populations, well over 100 million people. And I think at that time, um, the chief economist, I'm forgetting his name, really was looking at which are the markets that um, are growing, have a high population. Back in 2000, it's ironic that it would be that same phrase that would be sort of like the alliance that will define the challenge to the West what they call the G7 mm-hmm. markets. That is, it was coined in Wall Street. So it's it's, almost, so it's not even a, it's a, ironical. A, a, a creation <laughs> of whether Russia, Brazil, or China. No, it's a very much a Goldman Sachs it's uh, a chief Wall Street. economist <laughs> but why product. Did, why did they choose South Africa in terms of, uh, if, you, if you look at all those categories that they were looking at, why not Nigeria? Um, that's a good question. I think um, South Africa still is uh, the most sophisticated economy in Africa. Yes, Nigeria has overtaken it in terms of size. It's almost as if you look at US and China. Mm -hmm. China could have a big population, but American economy is very sophisticated. Mm -hmm. So I think South Africa, 
the population it's not that high but the level of sophistication and this was coming at the time of the early 2000s where a lot of people when they talk about Africa really just new south africa really very true you know they, that sophisticated knowledge of other countries hadn't developed at that time it was you know we know mandela you know uh south africa so i think south africa fitted nicely as an uh, the one that could sort of rally other african countries because at that time it was the largest um economy at that time it's been overtaken by nigeria but still it remains a far more sophisticated and look at the jse mm-hmm. it's uh the, the it's the deepest most sophisticated stock market um in Africa so in as much as you know we keep saying of Nigeria but um i think serious minds are still very much aware mm-hmm. that and uh South Africa still holds a huge huge uh what you call soft power still um, and influence and influence well, we expected uh, Putin to be part of the delegation that is coming down that's not a dynamic i think and that's politics right. and um I mean it's interesting because th- we do know that there is an international arrest warrant but I don't think that should take away from Russia's commitment to this thing I think um the idea behind BRICS now this the initial idea of BRICS of as the countries that will have the most growth towards this political alliance that will talk about can we use another currency besides the dollar that won't be on the agenda for this time but that's always been touted as one of their sort of main things So I think obviously you know those that issue of South Africa um providing arms to Russia which really put them in the negative light political um commentators have really focused on that but I think uh, from the Russian perspective it's 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 building on its Russia Africa summit which was just really a few months ago and really emphasizing that Africa as a not just as a home of natural resources but really as a huge market for your products um um is 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 an important plan i think that's the reason a possibly is going to send his most um trusted lieutenant has there been any reverberation felt with the onset of this summit within the markets on the continent or it's still too early to say i think in south africa in terms we, of performance in south africa we've definitely seen uh, from the currency gain uh but beyond that not quite because when you look at nigeria actually that positive story i've been giving you actually this week was the opposite we are seeing a lot of profit taking and things going down um so i don't think i think it's really limited to south africa uh but definitely if any major you know outcome um is felt because a lot of countries have applied for membership including ethiopia if all these countries apply and there's a big decision that says uh we'll have our own bank and maybe we won't have a common currency but we can support our own currencies we can have a bank that supplies our own five well now if all the 40 members are whoever apply whoever applied Accepted. admitted you know you have a big 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 voice that can sort of challenge the G7 uh payment systems you know if you have a payment system today it can't include Russia and you know we depend on swift so a lot of people say okay so if if the west doesn't favor me it means i need to have a, a alternative payment forms to be able to accept international currency because swift is uh part of the um the western infrastructure so i think there's that thinking that the world is uh dominated and the world needs alternatives i don't think this is a step of hostility 
I think it's just saying no one group should have this amount of power. We should have um, what they call a multipolar world where if we don't agree face to face on this, I should be able to join other alliances and still continue fairly well with my trade. I think people feel right now if you're not part of what you call the Anglo-Saxon um, infrastructure, then you're really locked out of almost everything in this world. And I think it's it's almost a rebalancing of that. And so what do you expect would be the likely outcome from this summit? Maybe by the time they're closing, winding down, um, what would be the likely results? I think the fact that they've put aside the issue of the currency, I think there'll be a lot of focus on how do we boost trade amongst ourselves? How do we push? But remember, these are countries that are very geographically far away uh, from Brazil to China to India to South Africa. These are not neighbors. Uh, But there'll be that idea of can we have our currencies really uh, dominate our trade? So I don't think that's so significant. I think it really becomes significant when you start saying can oil be purchased in significantly in any of these currencies because that's where it really starts touching um, international finance when you can say uh, Russia or Saudis can accept you know payments in this so I think so the dynamics that will be so I think this is just building momentum building momentum brainstorming obviously they will get ideas that maybe had not been there before the summit was planned and maybe those ideas will be explored in future summits. Which is also quite likely because Saudi has put in an intention and an application to join the BRICS. There you go. (laughs) So it'll be BRICS. (laughs) 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 Um, Just maybe the commodities, because we we haven't touched on that as well. Danny, before you go to the commodities. Yes. So China is part of BRICS, and they're already in South Africa to discuss trade but they are in an economic crisis. So how fundamental, how impactful is China going to be on this table if at all they are already having a fire brewing in their homes and they are coming to discuss? No, they are having sleepless nights, really. Um, it's the analogy of, you Maybe know... Maybe they can have the houses to the Russians. But, uh, no, it's going to be very difficult because, you know, when you have a huge crisis brewing at home, mm-hmm. it's very hard to focus on these alliances it's almost like saying, can you build your chama when your home is is burning? So I think in the in the mind of Xi Jinping, he's very much focused on what's happening on the property developers. Uh, physically, maybe in South Africa, but I'm sure he's getting real-time updates on these defaults. What do these defaults mean? Can these payments be restructured? Can QE, has somebody written a paper on how QE is ready? I think... At the back of his mind, I would not be surprised if he's glued on his <laughs> smartphone, right. really talking to his people. But symbolically, he might say, maybe part of our solutions might be found within bricks. Maybe because uh, the issue of consumer demand is weak, maybe bricks might be a solution. But you're absolutely right, Nyambura. I really believe that um, it's hard to focus on a long-term strategy when really this thing is really at at your doorstep. So I think the sooner they can get a handle on um, the property market, which contributes about 25% oh, of the economy. That's what agriculture is as, as Kenya. Yeah. If they can get a handle on that, then I think it'll be more settled. Now you can talk about bricks and the Belt and Road Initiative. All these are futuristic things, but right now, really, he has to focus on really that. Okay. 
Yeah, just uh, just like I mentioned, there's been an interesting turn of events within the commodities market. If you look at the metals, surprisingly, all of them are up. Gold, silver, copper, steel, iron ore. Even with the crisis that is being anticipated to be kind of erupt, almost erupting in China, there seems to be very good feedback from this. And if, if you notice, Danny, the commodities, um, particularly the metallic ones, almost um, go in the similar directions with the equities. So if you have a rebound on equities, it's speaking to a growth in global demand. And it's very rare you'll find um, a contradiction of that in the, either the agricultural commodities or the metallic commodities. So for me, when I saw the rebound in the big indices, by all means, uh, this was a positive sentiment, and I think it's filtering through uh, most most, most of it. I think gold is interesting because um, if you look at the dollar right now, where it is um, interest rates, as Nyambura had said, at the highest in 16 years. And I think that dynamic is uh, looking at gold, which tends to be a hedge against inflation. But I think a lot of people are starting to hold these government securities. You know, it's when will you find a 10-year bond at 4.35%? It's very, very hard. So I think people are saying, wow, that's an opportunity over a lifetime. Let me sell this gold and get you some of that. Into yeah, because the outlook is these things will start coming down. So, But definitely the outlook uh, mirrors uh, what we are finding on the equity space. And the agricultural commodities? Precisely. Um, obviously, sugar continues um, to play out in various dynamics, uh, both globally and locally. In fact, in the agricultural uh, survey that the CBK published, we saw some of the dynamics that are playing out in the in the, in the sector. But still, I think, uh, aside from sugar, we are really finding it, uh, most of the agricultural commodities um, going in the same way. Now, last week, a very interesting uh, report, well, various of them were released by the Central Bank of Kenya in line with our economy. And they did have a report on the CEO survey, the market perception survey, and the agricultural sector survey. What would you say is really the importance of these reports before we even try and just get into them and see how each and every one of them kind of analyze the economy? Yeah, I think these reports are meant to provide um, perspective to uh, the Monetary Policy Committee on what's in the minds of the key actors in the economy. Um, they have their own perceptions, but they want to hear what is the market saying? Uh, what are CEOs saying what are market participants saying what are agriculture and i think agriculture because it holds such a big um stake in our economy so i think it's uh, supposed to provide a feedback loop on expectations because inflation expectations are as important as inflation in its present form so i think it's to see what are the concerns and some concerns have been raised for example in the ceo uh survey i think we have talked about really the political unrest uh, the cost of living um, is really sort of like the, the cost of fuel. Act. Exactly, is, is affecting. So I think it's just meant to make sure that the voice of the private sector is incorporated uh, within the conduct of monetary policy. What I found interesting actually is that the agricultural sector continues to play a critical role in Kenya, accounting for 20% of the GDP. Now, Added to that, the sector also accounts for 40% of the total employment 
and more than 70% of employment to the rural population, which is, those are very big figures if you look at them. My question is, Ken, do you, are there really any good instrumental variables for GDP? Now, in this sense, when you look at the agricultural sector, what would be used to do that scaling up? They do have um, statistics that cover agricultural sector, not in this survey, but in a separate report. It's called the Leading Economic Indicators, where they look at things like milk production, um, sugar output, sugar production. The idea is if an economy is growing, people should be consuming more milk, people should be consuming more sugar. So it's an indicator. Um, I don't think it was captured uh, particularly in this agriculture survey, but the Bureau of Statistics, which is a sister to really the central bank, does publish every month um, key indicators such as wheat output, milk production, that's supposed to give you, uh, particularly to a, a keen observer, if you aggregate all these statistics, you're able to say, hmm, I think the economy is growing pretty well because all these indicators are pointing up. In uh, this survey, it didn't come out in that way. But still, we got some interesting nuggets on, you know, they talked about sugar, which I said earlier. They talked about onions. They talked about um, maize, uh, what's happening. So you, you can tease out some things. So I think the power of really economic policy is to get as many insights from as many reports. There's no one master report that will give you everything. It's almost um, a tapestry that brings together reports and indicators and, 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 and one thing I've always advocated for Kenya to have is to have a consumer confidence index that aggregates all these things so we start looking at one index instead of starting to say, okay, um, people are not sort of like taking matatus or we have all these what called pedestrian um, ways. I think it's high time we start building a consumer confidence index that looks at car sales looks at uh, vehicle sales, look at machinery, looks at dairy production, just aggregates and says our consumption as a country is going up or it's going down. I think that's the one gap which you see in other countries like in the US where you have the University of Michigan Consumer Confident Index that tells you, wow, consumption, people are confident or people are not feeling confident and that is really useful even for a business owner because if I own a restaurant and I see that index is down, I might say, okay, maybe I shouldn't order as much because demand is not sort of like as strong. If the other way around, if it's going up, then I should order much more because I should expect more and more people. So I think this survey just sort of gives you a flavor of some of the things, uh, but by no means does I don't I don't think it's exhaustive of really what's happening in the agriculture space. Um, I agree with you, Ken, because mm-hmm. I was going through the CEO survey, the agriculture the market perceptions. One thing I picked up from the CEO survey for July was um, the outlook for business is actually quite optimistic. Agriculture is doing well because of the rains. We see, um, if at all, the government puts out these surveys to understand what's happening in the market. I still think there's a discount because fuel prices the weakening shilling, the politics, are definitely having a really tough impact on our economy. And uh, 
we see things like manufacturing also being affected. The cost of inputs is absolutely high. From the agricultural sector survey, uh, the farmers say they're not able to actually get these subsidies. But we also see how this ma- this plays in with uh, the debt and how they're able to get uh, financing through banks, family, um, this fund... Uh, the hustler fund. The hustler fund came in, so it it gives insight. But I think one thing that came out of the survey was talent management is actually a key thing that CEOs are looking as one of the things that is going to drive growth. So, what would be your take on talent management and this age reward structure, especially in the service industry? I found that particular point, uh, just like you, very fascinating. Uh, when I looked at the highlights of the CEO survey, I think it's also important to put in context that it's government producing this report. And being government, I mean, it's tough. They can't really be self-critical as such. So they have to provide it in a way that even if maybe CEOs are not optimistic, they, they can it's word it. bed they can lie on. <laughs> exactly. So one of the key points, as Anyambura said, was the issue. They said a lot of companies are looking at three things in terms of uh, making their businesses prosper. Number one, um, talent management. Number two, customer centricity. And number three, exploring new markets. And I was very keen on talent management, and I wish they would have gone a bit deeper because it there's so many layers. Is it a um, wage increase? Mm. Because that's what's happening in countries like you know in the U.K., Wage increase is becoming such a big issue. Actually, they're calling it it's part of inflation. It's driving um, inflation up. So I wish they had um, broken that down, but I would imagine it to mean that a lot of people right now, um, inflation has eroded their purchasing power. Your pay slip has been house levied (laughs) and and all other things. And now you're looking for greener pastures. Mm -hmm. You could be the talent in this media house. But now other companies are saying, Danny... Can we get you for double? Mm. So I think how do you keep the talent in the company? So I think that's a big part, particularly when your budgets as a company really are still limited because the economy is not doing very well. I think the other two of um, customer centricity really speaks to how well you understand your market. Are you providing? And I think it's an important point because right now a lot of entrepreneurs are very comfortable in saying, oh, the economy is not doing well. Right. My business is not doing well because the economy is doing not doing well. But there's an element of maybe your products have not been tweaked to the market. Maybe the cost of your product has not been... Maybe you're operating your product pre-COVID and COVID has changed the whole universe. So I keep saying to entrepreneurs, in as much as you blame the economy for maybe weak performance, are you doing everything in product development? Have you looked at your prices? Have you done research? Right. Uh, people may be looking for digital options to you. What was your what was a physical offering? So I, I, I don't think people do that enough. So I think customer centricity will give you that. Then exploring new markets, not just international, but across the counties. You know, we are very Nairobi focused. But last week from the Devolution Conference, we were reminded there are 47, 46 other counties are we looking at what are the possibilities you can have this product in Embu, in Laikipia, in Lamu? You know, a lot of people 
they don't think of new markets in that sense. I think sometimes we focus on the international markets, Tanzania, Rwanda, but in the counties, are we exploring opportunities in the counties? So I think, for me, if that's a strategy CEOs are pursuing, I think it's it's a fairly good strategy, and I think um, that might be the reason why they maybe they feel uh, they may be resilient moving forward. Agriculture, Danny had talked on, is um, contributing greatly to our GDP. And actually, that is the one sector that everybody is like, we are going to be making money, it's going to be growing. And it is led by um, the increased exports. But um, you also have the ring that has come in. Uh, you had touched on the sugarcane, the onions. Um, uh, looking at the market perceptions as well, we are looking at, uh, other than agriculture, we are looking at banks uh, financial services industry looking very good. We have um, trade and manufacturing. And I think what came out in the market perception survey was uh, the funding. And I think uh, you've talked in other sessions how government is the biggest. Uh, people just want to loan and give to the to the government because they are giving the best rates, but in the survey, uh, we can see a need by the non-bank private mm-hmm. firms. And this is a very good indicator for the economy because um, they predict there's going to be growth in borrowing from this sector. Um, maybe through the angles that they looked at, tourism, construction, transport, what would you think uh, they're borrowing for? Now, I do believe the economy is cash-starved and businesses are looking uh, for funding not just to expand but also to cope with the new taxes, the new measures, um, the new um, regulations that have come into place. So I think it's a good thing that uh, the non-banking players are, are as important. You know, sometimes you talk to some people who've built and done things with their lives uh, in terms of property. They, and they'll tell you, you know, circles have been the ones that have been lending to them at 10, 11% when banks maybe are lending to you at 19%. So I think that competition is healthy. I think banks are doing their job, but also the non-bank institutions like the SACOs, uh, they're also really supporting Kenyans, particularly at a very, very, very difficult time, even for themselves. In fact, one SACO was saying that they fear they might have high non-performing loans because of the levies that have been put on people's salaries. When the levies are done, then the amount that they should come and deduct from the payslip is actually more than what has been left and uh, default occurs. So I think it's important that we have a diversified um, financial services sector because it's it's really, you know, I keep saying money is to the economy what the oxygen is um, to the human body. And the more we can get credit, affordable credit, right now, Credit is about 19. If you look at the risk-based pricing model, some people are paying up to 19%. So I think it's attracting more sources of financing. And I think that point has come out. And I think they've read the market very well. If in in hospitality, the report tells you hotel forward bookings are looking, they're doing very well. So if I'm a hotelier, it's August. We have three months to high season in December. I need to start pushing my uh, occupancy. But this is where customer centricity comes in. And I like when they say customer centricity because if I'm a hotel owner in Diani, 
Mm. And I've read this report and I'm saying, okay, the forward bookings are up. So maybe I should go and get a loan from my nearest bank to um, to build more uh, accommodations or to renovate my accommodation ahead of December, the high, the high season. But customer centricity will also tell you that Airbnb has become an option for, cli- for clients. So people, when they go to Christmas this year, families might want to spend time in Airbnb, as we saw in Nyeri during the musical festivals and was in Gishu during the Devolution Conference. So a good hotel, some of the hotels, what they are doing is actually listing the hotel rooms on Airbnb. And that's why I think that's where customer centricity comes in where it says, okay, do we really need extra loans to build more or uh, do we compete with the Airbnbs and just list our properties? So that's why customer centricity, I think, is very key. Really understanding what's driving customer behavior and how do we adapt um, our, 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 our strategy towards the new challenges that the digital economy is bringing us. And, and still on that point, the, the interesting thing from a very eagle-eye perspective of this service is that they come in really handy, especially if you're in decision-making positions, you know, CEOs, how to retain talent. We all know how expensive it is to bring talent in, train it, and then, you know, who knows, all of a sudden you might even lose it and start again but now at the very basic level of the Kenyan who wakes up every morning runs to Marikiti or is running their own business and doing all these other things how can the central bank make this service make more sense to these people in this sense before you answer is there any way that they can use this service for instance to push more activity in the NSC, for example, they have listed agriculture as one of the sectors that's really doing really well. So does that mean then that if I have 5,000 shillings and I want to grow it, I open a CSD account, CDS account, see, now central bank is confusing me. I open a CDS account and then I buy shares in Kakuzi with a target, for instance. Let's say if I want to grow my 5,000 to 10K. How long should I hold Kakuzi shares? Because now this is the best performing sector so far, according to the central bank within the economy. Or in banking, let's say I buy INM shares or Family Bank. How can how can they use how can they make this information trickle down to the extent that then they're also generating and creating more activity within the local population, not well, not local, domestic population in in, in the stock exchange? Well, we have to understand uh, the motivations between the public sector and the private sector. The people who are doing these reports um, in government um, are not business people, really. These are policy makers, Mm -hmm. researchers, and they are fulfilling a mandate of um, reporting and giving the population data. The private sector, on the other hand, has a profit motive and is trying to make money. It's trying to make a buck from uh, that activity. So there's that huge chasm between the two uh, that exists. And it will always exist. You know, I keep talking about the Nairobi Agricultural Show. Um, I used to love going there because that's where a lot of government entities showcase their products. But many people in the private sector, they don't go. They say that's something we used to do when we were kids. 
you had to go as schools but i keep saying if you go there you'll understand what all these major entities the kenha the kuras kcc afc what are they doing because your love stands there but people are too busy running around town looking for money to go for these things so there'll always be that chasm so the question is whose work is it to bridge it you can have private companies we try to do it at mentoria with our reports where we try to break down these reports into something um customers can consume in in ways that help in the business but there's that vo- and that void will always be there so the question is are there entities that can come in the middle that really because i as an economist um I, I get surprised by how much data we get from the government from the bureau of statistics we've not even talked about the q1 gdp numbers and i keep wondering what about non economists on the street of nairobi how much less do who they know who are the majority who are the majority so there are intermediary the investment houses there are advisory firms like us that play that role where we sort of act as a bridge but those two will always be separate because they act for different reasons and it's the bridge people in the bridge who have to make um that and they can actually make it in a way that's sustainable so it's really not that the reports are not useful it's just how can you get then the the domestic market to have an an a need to access this information and then make decisions based on what they read because i would assume then that if the report says that agriculture is doing well or for instance manufacturing then i would run and buy whatever is listed at that period in the hope that also I'm increasing my 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 revenue in whatever I'm holding and then if I reach my target then I can sell it there has to be a space for nuance and I think that's sometimes where the danger lies in where the statistic gives you a broad statistic but the nuance that applies to your sector might not be the case and I'll like I'll take the example of the tourism sector there has been a lot of elaboration that Kenya's tourism sector is the elite type of tourism the international tourism where somebody comes from London or New York lands at Jomo Kenyatta goes to Wilson Airport flies to Nanyuki doesn't even stay in a hotel will stay in a ranch and that ranch will be there for like a month or go to Lamu and stay in a house Now if that's what hotel forward booking somebody gets that and you are just operating a simple hotel in the middle of downtown Mombasa those are two very in the same sector but two very very different sectors the billionaire coming to live in a villa and the Nairobian who's going to an Airbnb in Nyali those are two very different markets and that's where strategy has to come in strategy means taking the big data coming from the government but also now localizing it to your specific so you're a mid tier hotel say forget a b c d focus on this for this market price sensitivity is very high so that's where strategy really has to come in and maybe one day we need to do a whole episode on strategy how do you take whole data and really funnel it towards what specifically useful to you as a three star hotel operating in Kericho this data might not be useful for you because maybe it's looking at global data so strategy and that's what strategy consultants do they're able to sort of funnel 
what's important to you and really uh, what can you do away with? Let me break it down and this is going to be a fast strategy from the information that we've been given <laughs> by the, our good government. Huh? So we know of how dire our employment uh, is in Kenya. The report shows the only sector that is going to be employing is banking. <laughs> the next sector that is going to be employing is tourism. The rest, construction, trade, manufacturing, and agriculture have said we don't have the capacity to employ. So I think, as you've said, we have the information that can actually lead to our decision making. We don't know. Okay. Majority of the people will not know. But us, as the people who have this information, as a private sector, it is our part and our duty to take this information and break it down. Because now at least I know who I'm going to be targeting. Um, should I need business? Should I need growth? Um, and anything to that extent. It also looked at uh, the exchange rate expectations. And we definitely know how high the dollar is right now. But this has also worked for us because we have received a lot of money that has come in from our good people from across the ocean. And I think it is working for us uh, because I think uh, the money that came in was about 50, 54 billion or a million. As uh, the the remittance is coming from our diaspora and we don't know what the money is coming to do but at least the weakening feeling which is quite unfortunate is also still helping the economy in one way or another so I think we look forward to getting more money from outside and then we look forward at uh, <laughs> banking and tourism <laughs> I think the, f- the first part of your of your um uh, thesis, I think it's it's quite fascinating because you know yesterday online people were debating why is Twitter laying off people? Right. Yet the CBK survey is saying uh, is people are uh, you know agriculture, uh, financial services is, is is the way it goes. So and that's why I keep saying um, it is a difference between macro data and micro. Micro is very individual company specific. What CBK will give is macro data. So some sectors are hiring. So it's useful, you know, if I was a HR consultant and a training consultant, I'd say, okay, which are the sectors where more people are being hired and I can do more training? I'd look at banks. So if I was a HR consultant, I'd say my clients will just be banks. And, okay, I don't know about agriculture. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe they <laughs> I don't know. The family is Not that they're not worthy of training, mm-hmm. but just maybe the, mm-hmm. the, the structure has, has not been there. And 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 and, that, and that's what you find sometimes some CEOs sometimes become very critical of these surveys. They say right. oh, those surveys you're quoting a macro. Uh-huh. Me, I deal in the micro, and in my micro, things are rosy. Things have never been. I can't get enough words to tell you how, how things much are money <laughs> I am making exactly. that you're not even taxing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I think you balance is an important part to understand. Macro data versus micro data. To the exchange rate, I think you're absolutely spot on, Yambura. It's for me, if this was a country of production, and I keep saying, if nothing else I said on this show, production has to be the direction Kenya goes. If Kenya was producing and exporting, we'd be enjoying this exchange rate 
uh, weakening. I mean, that's the reason China, America is always furious with China because China is always weakening its currency. Here in Kenya, we're always asking, why are we, is our currency weak? In fact, it's almost like a sign of how good your bad, your economic policy is. In China, they're always weakening their currency because they're an export driven. So if Kenya was export oriented and you are selling things, this exchange rate would have been working in our favor. It's only problem is the story of production in this country died many years ago. We are importing, we import toothpicks, we import medicine, we import everything. And that's why we are being hit very hard mm-hmm. where, you know, if you want to renew your licenses to an international company, your bill is in dollars, has gone up by X amount. So I think the fact that we are importers, I think the key thing is we need to move to become net exporters um, for us to enjoy really what's happening on the on the exchange rates. Thank you very much. Nyambura Ndungu, most welcome guest on the Financial Focus this first Tuesday. Thank you for joining the big boys, as you so claimed. We'll need evidence of that. Uh, Ken Gishinga, Chief Economist, Monetary Economics, thank you very much. This Tuesday, every other Tuesday, you're always available for us. And for you listening, Asante, catch up on this latest episode, as well as previous episodes of the Financial Focus on Capital FM SoundCloud page or anywhere else where you get your podcast from. See you again next Tuesday. 